Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. I have been so excited to put this week's episode out, you have no idea. We're going in a different direction this week. We are hearing from Stephen Thomas Earlwine, music critic for all music. Now, if you guys are like me, and if you're listening to this, you are, you know very well who Stephen Thomas Earlwine is and what allmusic.com is. I literally am on that site for one reason or another almost every day. Which means that I have this very intimate relationship with him. I feel like I've read his stuff so often that I know him or I, you know, you see the name and it feels like an old friend or whatever. He doesn't know me. He probably thinks I'm a psycho. But I thought it would be really interesting to get to know the guy and, you know, find out who he is and what his thoughts are on things. So there are some, first of all, some very strange coincidences in here. Number one, he and I are almost exactly the same age. We were literally born just a few weeks apart. We also have some of the same influences that turned us on to music in the first place. And then most random at all of all, we lived, we lived in the same small Michigan town at the same time in the early 90s. So random. So this conversation is basically broken up into three parts. Number one, I want to know how the sausage gets made at all music. How do the assignments go out? What's the philosophy? How does everything, you know, get up on the site? Why do some things not have album art attached? All that kind of stuff. You'll find out too that there's a difference between AllMusic and AllMusic.com and he doesn't really have anything to do with the website. So he's as lost as we are on some things. Like for instance, why is there not a decent app? It should be the simplest thing in the world and yet it's not and he doesn't have an answer for that. So after we get into all the details of that, then we talk about the current state of music criticism. Because really, uh, it's kind of dying. Every person with a platform, which is basically anyone in the world on social media, can tweet out their own thoughts or feelings about an album or a song or whatever, and be viewed, depending on how many people see that, as a voice of reason or an expert on the matter. And so we talk about whether you know truly academic approaches to music criticism are even necessary anymore. He thinks they are, of course he does, right? So then we get into the third part, which is the fun part, that's the juicy part. That's when we start talking about favorite this, least favorite that, best, worst, overrated, underrated, whatever it might be, that's the juice, that's the fun part. Also, because now you guys know, if you listen regularly, you know, anytime one of the guests mentioned a song or whatever, we try to play a little bit of the song so everyone knows what we're talking about. Well, that would literally have happened about every 30 seconds in this conversation. So it didn't make sense to break up the momentum every time we talk about a song. So instead, I decided to treat it like a Desert Island Discs on the BBC. So every 15, 20 minutes, we kind of stop for a second and I ask him for one of his all-time favorite songs and we play that song and he kind of tells us why it matters. This song you're listening to here is not one of those songs. This was my pick, but it was based on a conversation that we had. This is Columbia by Oasis, one of my top 10 favorite bands of all time. You'll find out why I picked this song later. Anyway, this is one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had with anybody. I hope he liked it. I think I probably kept him longer than he wanted to be kept. I think I may have worn out my welcome by the end, but whatever, I got a lot out of it and I loved him very much. He called me from his home in Austin.
One thing I find really funny, or not, well, I don't know if it's funny, but it's interesting. So you have one of the longest bylines <laughs> in music criticism. Oh, uh, yeah. However, but, you told me just to call you Tom. Is that right? That is correct. I do go by Tom. It's sort of a tradition in my family where uh, people go by their middle name. My dad is uh, Robert Stevens, so he's had a lot of, you know, a lot of people <laughs> think that I am him or, no, he is me. So, uh-huh. so that's, that's a problem. Problem. It's, sure. It goes back to the early days of All Music when there, my uncle, who's an artist and was de- designing the All Music logo and the books, uh, he goes by Tom. And so through, through, uh, there were some negotiations where it wound up being an ungainly long byline. But yeah. I go, I go by Tom. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Stephen Tom is. Erlewine, right? Am I saying yes. it right? Yeah, you're okay. saying it right. Okay, good. As I mentioned before, I, I've had – so every day when I'm at work, I have at least three things, three browsers open. I have my personal email, my work email, and allmusic.com every day. And some, there are other – you know, nowadays it's Facebook and other things like that. But for, every, you know, 15, 18 years, however long, mm-hmm. uh, I have not gone – other than a weekend – Maybe I don't think I've gone a day without reading something that you've written. That's does, does that blow your mind? It blows oh, mine. Oh, it absolutely blows my mind, and it's very flattering to hear that. But you, I never sort of expect that there's anybody reading my work to begin with, and then to really, <laughs> really, what would you have to do? Because like I've known, like whenever I've had writer's block, it's when I think that oh, this is a big important statement, and so mm-hmm. I have to to uh, be very careful about it. But if you go about it and think that nobody's going to read it, you're going to be a lot looser and you're hopefully going to be able to write. But it is amazing to me that through timing and good fortune and licensing that it just happens to be everywhere. The rise of all music happened to coincide with the rise of the Internet. And then Mm -hmm. it gets uh, licensed out to a number of different places. And then it also gets excerpted in a lot of Mm. different places. So you can see it licensed out to uh, Apple Music, iTunes, mm-hmm. Spotify, Pandora, uh, mm-hmm. iHeartMedia, but then you also go into Wiki, and it's yeah. a lot of all music reviews are cited there. Uh, that becomes really frustrating, by the way, if you're trying to do research sometimes, and <laughs> that all you can find <laughs> is something that you or your colleagues have written. <laughs> I have thought about it. <laughs> it's, it's very flattering, of course, but, but sometimes oh. you're looking for like uh, different takes, or maybe there was some, something else out there. And uh, oh, there are man. sometimes where the only outlet, especially now considering how dicey the state of music sure. uh, journalism and criticism is we may be the only outlet that actually covers some some music so yeah agreed and i want to i want to go deep on that here in a little bit but first well first of all as i mentioned we're going to try and treat this a little bit like a desert island discs episode on the bbc absolutely and see normally when you listen to an episode of this of my podcast when we talk to a musician, anytime they mention a song of theirs or we start talking about something, we always play a little snippet of what we're talking about to give context to the listener because sometimes we're talking to some pretty obscure people. But yeah. in your case, if we if it's just you and me talking about music criticism, we're not going to be able to play very much. So I thought, let's insert some of Tom's favorite songs. So Desert Island Disc, what would be your first choice? I am going to begin with uh, Dave Edmonds' Queen of Hearts.
I first learned the song through Juice Newton's hit version, mm-hmm. and that would that would have been one of the first three albums I ever purchased. And I still love uh, Juice Newton's version, but uh, Dave Edmonds is, and Nick Lowe are sort of like a gateway to a lot of different things that I love. And mm. I and I think that uh, it's such an exceptional tightly written song and the production is fantastic uh, mm-hmm. and it's uh, for me that's um, sort of at the foundation of, of everything that I like um, fascinating yeah wow oh, I love I'm so glad we're doing this Tom this is so amazing <laughs> I, this is I'm like glad picking Roger fun. Ebert's brain do you realize that well Roger Ebert is an absolute hero of mine and I think that he was uh, he was really influential on how I look at criticism in general, whether it's for music, movies, or whatever format that you'd like, sure. uh, it's because that he always seemed to deal with genre as genre. Mm-hmm. Like he, he he wouldn't necessarily pit a horror film against uh, a family sure. film, yeah. and so so it's, you go into the infamous uh, Siskel Niebert uh, fight over Cop and a Half, which is probably mm-hmm. a lousy movie, but but you like you can because uh, which I've not not seen. I but saw it back in the day. I, I'm, maybe I did. I don't really think yeah. I did. But sure. the fact the fact that you know Roger has the argument for it because yeah. you know it's, it has limited expectations and it does it pretty well and entertainingly. That I think is sort of like transferred over to what we've done at All Music. Uh, whereas, mm. like, you're not, you know, there are certain genre albums. Like, if you are really into power pop, that mm-hmm. is, you know, it it is formulaic. But, you mm-hmm. know, as with any formula, it's what's really interesting is how people play with it or maybe, mm-hmm. like, are able to, or execution. And so it, maybe it's not as ambitious as other music, but we really praise the genres for being genres. Yeah. Okay. Killer. Okay. So I want to know uh, I want to know about you personally and how you started out. Whether you started at AllMusic.com. First of all, I don't I don't know if I even know what you look like, but I think <laughs> I think one There's some time bad photos out there. I well, here's what I was gonna say. I think once about 15 years ago or so, there was a VH1 show where I think it was you had to guess what the real re- meaning behind a song was. Oh yes, that was so there were that's, That's just it. Been yes. the story behind the song. I did a, yeah, I did a few of those, and uh, that was one of the uh, the couple of times that I was fortunate enough to show up on TV. I also was on a uh, Annie biography for Britney Spears uh, in 2008, which was aired just before the meltdown. So uh-huh. it was ba- it was barely awesome. aired, <laughs> and so, so it was right as blackout came. Came out yeah. before she shaved her head and started okay. beating uh, cars. Yeah, the narrative umbrellas. quickly changed. But yeah, yeah, this is this is what happens when you're a little bit averse to cameras. You know, okay. I don't necessarily like uh, getting my photo taken that much. Yeah. But you know, okay. I basically grew up in a musical household, which was also um, both like my immediate family and the extended family. And okay. uh, so, and I remember going home uh, when when I was in elementary school to listen to my dad's records, I would listen to Everly Brothers and mm. the, the Beatles. And I remember hearing Bob Wills and Helen Wolf played around the house. Mm-hmm. But um, my dad's older brother were Michael and Daniel Earlwine, who were in a band called the Prime Movers in Ann Arbor, sure. Michigan. And yeah. uh, for for a while, uh, Iggy Pop was the drummer. 
Yeah. There, there was like, and uh, there's an Ace collection uh, called A Squared that has the only officially released uh, cut from the Prime Movers. If you want to seek oh, that out. Oh, that's uh, what it is. Okay. Yeah, where they're doing I'm a Man, and yeah. uh, and and Daniel wound up uh, being a luthier, making uh, like Albert King's Flying D. Okay. The, the Black Walnut, which uh, Steven Seagal now owns. <laughs> and, of course, as, as, as one does. <laughs> sure. My dad's cousin Mark, who's also in Austin, Texas, and he maintains Willie Nelson's Trigger, and he oh. also made, he made uh, the Chiquita guitar that's seen at the beginning of Back to the Future. Oh uh, way. So uh, you know, like this is just sort of like in the background of my growing up. But as yeah. I was growing up, I was. Uh, very much obsessed with music press and going through records. And for for me, uh, like so many people, uh, the Beatles are ground zero. I remember, okay. like, once I, I turned 11 in 1984, so that, you know, that's like a 20th anniversary of Beatlemania. Yeah. And my parents gave me uh, Beatles Illustrated Record, which I paged oh, wow. through forever and so you know yeah. i would like see pictures of maybe like the picture sleeve to jet or something but uh-huh. without actually uh-huh. hearing it before and i would also get wound up a few years down the road getting the rolling stone blue record guide and so okay. you, so you would read about the records that way yeah. And, yeah. and as i was going into high school uh, rolling stone published their greatest albums of the last 20 years uh, that was one of the most influential moments of my life for you I, too yes i was 14 I, in 1987 it sounds like we, you were too. we're exactly the same age then. okay my birthday like. was just last week and well, uh, mine was last month so <laughs> oh, wow <laughs> all right there How we go uh-huh. but yeah i um not to make this about me but i'll give you a little story so i grew up in salt lake city utah and mm-hmm. we're mormon and i am showing a love for pop music and rock music and my dad is doing his best not to it's not one of those footloose situations where it's all <laughs> evil but it is sort of like he is trying to sort of protect me from anything too crazy you know probably over yeah. and so uh, from the age of about 12 to i really start wanting a subscription to rolling stone and uh he won't let me have it and so my mom would sneak <laughs> yes my mom would buy copies for me and sneak them in and give them to me kind of under the table without him knowing when that came out, that was one of that to this day is one of the most influential things I've ever seen or read because it it opened my mind to all this stuff that I'd never heard of and it and it defines in your mind what's important and what you yes. should be focusing on at a at an instrumental time in your life when you're you're really looking for that kind of guidance. That's where I learned about television's Marky Moon, which is exactly. one of my favorite albums of all time and I used to have that memorized. I still have that as my issue of that magazine in a box somewhere in my garage. I, I, I do too, and the cover is uh, long gone and yeah. dog eared, but I had that same experience. Like it would be the first place I also heard about television, heard yeah. about uh, Shoot Out the Lights by Richard and Linda yeah. Thompson, uh, Rob Power, Iggy and Rob the Power. Rob Power, Graham Parker, which is who is bizarrely all over that one, and like he's somebody who's. Uh, Stock is faded. I'm a fan, but it's like, uh, it, it's, but that, but that's also what's interesting about 
doing these lists or doing uh, any kind of criticism, it's a snapshot of a point in time mm-hmm. of like how somebody is uh, regarded. And what's interesting to me is like you are among many other people roughly of our same generation, some people a little older, a little bit younger, who find that issue to be a uh, really? moment of the, like uh, my, uh, my friend and colleague Keith Harris, I know that I've had a long yeah. discussion with him about it and others like that. And another book that keeps coming up is uh, Dave Marsh's The Heart of Rock and Soul. Oh, which, I don't uh, know that one. Uh, which is roughly late 80s, I think maybe like 89 or so, so where he's doing the top thousand singles uh, since uh, rock and roll. Oh, wow. Oh, but he, he, he's also, in, in that one, he winds up incorporating Madonna and hip-hop and, like, B-side yeah. uh, of Bob Dylan. And, you know, like, I can see why people debate about Marsh sometimes. Mm-hmm. But what I like about that is that it was really focused on the 45. So it's like the complement mm-hmm. to uh, Rolling Stone focused on the album mm-hmm. because the formats are very different. And, you know, yeah. there's something that's really exciting about a single that you don't get from an LP. And also, he had, for as much as his reputation as a rockist, he had a very pop sensibility. And so when there's all these stupid debates about popism versus rockism in the rock critical world, if this guy who seems to be like, you know, like he's the, mm-hmm. the chief advocate of Springsteen, he yeah. also had this very much a pop sensibility, and that's why I think that no, there's no like clear line there. I, everything sort of yeah. goes together. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow! I can't believe you you said this. Yeah, that was huge for me. And and at the time, I'm still Bowie is my number one. Oh, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and he, you know, I, again, I'm 14. I'm just starting to kind of figure Bowie out, and I'm so. Conf- uh, no, and growing up in Utah, I don't know anyone else who knows who Bowie is. No. Listens to all those other older albums and stuff like that. And I'll never forget, Spiders from Mars is number six on that yes. list. And Changes Bowie, I think, is number 96. And yes. seeing those in there, like, it it, it uh, validated my interest. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. wow, I'm not alone. So there is. Good reason to be so fascinated by this Bowie guy. None of my friends get it, but Rolling Stone gets it. You're totally onto something there. It's like, uh, particularly when we weren't oversaturated by media, and that yeah. it was a little bit harder to find albums that, like, hearing, like, something could be very personal to you, and then you see some sort of validation somewhere, like, some sort of indication that you are not alone. And yeah. that can also be uh, the girl that you had a crush on yeah also really into Bowie because I know I, I had that experience as well nice. <laughs> and, there you go uh, and I also remember hearing R.E.M.'s Life's Rich Pageant uh, on oh. a local radio show like when, when I was 13 in 86 so it's it was I was living in a small town in western Michigan and for some reason every Sunday night uh, this uh, station WBRN would uh-huh. be should playing a full album that night, and so I would oh. be taping that, and so I got uh, Brothers go. in Arms that is that way, the Dire Straits record, yeah, and also, but Life Search Pageant was the first time that they oh, branched out into college rock, rock and alternative culture, and that sort of blew my mind, and that was the kind of thing where I wasn't sure whether I liked it or mm-hmm. not, and that's the one where you t- it, and that and that's good because that's when you start to really start develop your yeah, uh, not just your taste, but how you actually critically think about it. Yes, so true. Uh, now I got to ask, where in Western Michigan? 
Uh, it's a small town called uh, Big Rapids, which is about an hour uh, north of Grand Rapids. Ferris, Ferris State University. Ferris State University. I yes. lived in Big Rapids for so another little bit of trivia here. <laughs> I mentioned being Mormon, right? Yeah. So you know the Mormon missionaries out there mm-hmm. on their bikes with their name tags and ties. Yeah. I was one of those, and I went to Michigan on my two-year mission, and I served in Big Rapids for two months. No kidding. That is yes. amazing. What years would that be? This would have been ninety, uh, early 92, summer of 92. Summer of 92. I would have actually been around there at that time, time working at All Music, as a matter of fact. Oh, my gosh. What a yes, trip. Yeah, that, that is absolutely <laughs> crazy. I had Nobody no idea knows. That yeah. That that happened in uh, Big Rapids. I know. But, I know. I was there. Big Rapids one one is at is where all music uh, started. Where um, Michael what? Michael uh, who was in the Prime Movers, he uh, had an astrology software company that my dad worked at, and uh, so that's why my family went uh, to Big Rapids. So that's when I was was a kid, and then the way that I remember it, and I'm sure Michael would dispute this, but maybe not, is, is I re- remember that um, he, he when we were going off to college, we meaning me and my cousin Iotis, who is my Michael's eldest daughter, okay. uh, we 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 were having a, a family you know farewell uh, breakfast, uh-huh. and the, Michael had set up this uh, thing where. Matrix Software, the name, name of the mm-hmm. the astrology company, it was functioning as a, a wholesale retailer, so he mm-hmm. could purchase CDs at cost. Essentially. Oh, no I'm way. not sure. I'm not sure how he did it. I don't know what pretense that that right. that happened, but you know, I was able to uh, purchase uh, a lot of discs that way. No I way. remember, like, just and I got a bunch of stuff before heading out to my freshman year in college, and one of those included. John Coltrane and Johnny Hartman. Michael was convinced that this was not the Coltrane album that I should hear. Oh, and so because, sure. And which is which is right, but you know, uh, in some ways. But I had also already heard uh, my favorite things: Giant Steps, Love Supreme, a lot of the the big Atlantic and Impulse records. Yeah. But but he he starts spinning off this whole idea that. You know, there should be a guide that would help a, a neophyte such as myself to figure out what the right John yeah. Coltrane record would be. And so, you know, I didn't think much of it at the time, but then I would get calls from him my freshman year at college where he starts to put the thing together and he winds up uh, hiring a team of freelancers, a lot of them based out of Goldmine, uh, the record collector's magazine. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, Rock and Roll Disc, do you remember that? I don't remember that one. Uh-uh. Okay, that that was uh, like there there were a bunch of publications around the late '80s, early '90s that were focused on you know the sound quality of the CDs. And oh, right, that. right. Yeah, but but this one I had uh, was Memphis based. It had uh, uh, critics like uh, Rick Clark and John Floyd, and so some of these people came came in at that point. And so by the time that I was ready to spend my the summer of 92 when you were actually uh, in Big Rapids. <laughs> uh, I, I was helping uh, put together the first edition of the All Music Guide, which no way. All, all Music started as a print publication. The first book 
came out at the end of 92, and I was still in college, and wow. I spent spent my entire summer, you know, entering the CDs, uh, the, the reviews into the database, and then eventually okay. it wound up going a little bit further where I would start writing some descriptions. And as my college years went on, I would... I uh, was at uh, WCBN at uh, University of Michigan uh, mm-hmm. on the college station, and then I wound up uh, being at the Michigan Daily. So, so I would simultaneously be writing about music at uh, the college newspaper, and then uh, over my breaks, both uh, like spring break and uh, summer break, I would work at all music. And no way. I, I kept going until '95 when it wound up being pretty much a full-time gig. So okay. So you know, you know, it, it, it all this sort of uh, uh, opens up to perhaps justifiable criticism of, of being of nepotism, but I have to say that um, hey. Michael is the kind of person that you sort he works you hard. Uh-huh. <laughs> so okay. I, I believe I've proved myself. Yeah. And plus, plus it was after graduate. Graduating in '95, it, it was pretty much uh, 70 hours a week through for the next really? three, or four, three or four years. Like you, I would, we had uh, multiple book projects going, but the thing is, all the book projects fed into the database, and so the database uh-huh. could be repurposed as books, and then it goes onto the net probably around '94, maybe '95, but I think '94. Uh, okay. So, so, wow. So, so that's. Uh, Capsule history of all how all that's that your history about. and all music's history. Yes. Okay. Before we go any further, let me uh, let's throw in a second Desert Island disc. What else you got for us? Well, we can go into REM at that that point, which oh, uh, which uh, which Live Search Pageant really was uh, kind of a pivotal record mm-hmm. for me, and I I loved uh, I wound up seeing the video for uh, Fall on Me on mm-hmm. uh probably like postmodern MTV or some sometimes HBO mm-hmm. would show show videos. Uh but hearing that and also hearing Superman on that record, it mm-hmm. it sort of opened up a whole new world for me. So. Cool. Yeah, that's, um, that might be my favorite REM album, too. Um, I don't know if it's your favorite, but it, 
It's certainly up there. It's I mean, up it's there. Pretty it's much big. bulletproof. That that and Reckoning are probably my two favorites. Mm, mm. I've never been the Reckoning. I love. I do like that album, but I'm not the lover mm. of it that some people are. Um, I'm actually a big fan of a couple of their latter day albums, like Reveal and Accelerate. I think those two are amazing, and I can't remember what you think of them. That's so um, weird. I could look right now and see what you think of these <laughs> albums. Um, weird. Uh, my, well, my opinion may have changed. I, like, okay. Uh, that's that's <laughs> a one thing to keep in mind is that, again, reviews are often a snapshot of the kind sure. of, especially if it's written when it's released. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, with a lot of all music, uh, those can be retroactive reviews. And so okay. those might be a little bit firmer ground in terms of opinion. But I really like Accelerate. I think yeah. I think that that they had a hard hard time figuring out what they were doing after Bill Berry left, and I mm-hmm. think that Around the Sun is about as weak an album as a sure. major act has ever done, mm-hmm. and I barely remember it. But Accelerate is a hell of a record, and Collapse mm-hmm. Now is a really good way for the band to yeah wrap it all up. Agreed. Okay, cool. So Fall on Me from REM. That'll be your second one. Okay. So back to all music, I hope people love this because I am just soaking up every second of this conversation. So back in the day, it was was it like a periodical or something? I, I don't remember. I came to it around probably 2000, 2001. I, I, I hear that a lot. I think that in a lot of ways, the, like 2000, 2001 is the pinnacle of its reach because I think yeah. it coincides also with uh, the rise of Napster. I've heard uh, oh, through a lot of... A lot of people, uh, especially like maybe late 20s, early 30s, well, at this point, basically 30s, um, mm-hmm. you know, that they would, you know, discover things on all music, maybe like click through links or recommended artists and then be able to find places to download it. Mm-hmm. But but as, um, as I was saying, like it started as a record guide and it was going mm-hmm. to be a record record guide that was different than the Rolling Stone record guide, which was mm-hmm. um, in the back conception is like, if you go into certain artists in the Rolling Stone record guide, you might just get a range of zero stars to two stars, or you might mm-hmm. have all one stars. And it could be something like, uh, from the Carpenters or uh, Emerson, mm-hmm. Lincoln Palmer. So, you know, the concept was very similar to what we were talking about with Ebert, like uh, judge the act upon right. its own own work according to its own style. So if you go to the Carpenters, there might be a four-star Carpenters sure. record because that would be the good Carpenters record. Yeah. You'd have a range of th- things. And so, that's what I've always appreciated about all music. Yeah, and so that's yeah. the basic uh, idea. That I, and that, the nice thing about that aesthetic is that you can – use it from genre to genre, style to style, and mm-hmm. keep it, uh, and so it's not quite as, you know, constrained. So that was the idea, and also I, I remember Michael also making the argument at one point that, like, Pet Sounds is a great album, but not necessarily the first place to mm. uh, listen to the Beach Boys. And Good so there's point. also the introduction one, which um and at times I agree with that, at times I don't. But so basically you would offer a range of for the artist and then also good introductory points or for some mm-hmm. someone like Miles Davis who had different phases, you might mm-hmm. do picks for uh, the first class uh, 
quintet, the second class quintet, the electric ears, et cetera. Right. And so, so it started out as a book, and the, it was a general guide, and then the first genre-specific one was jazz, and then rock and country, blues and electronica, and soul and hip-hop all fa- followed. Um, okay. And, before, and were these being produced annually? Kind of. Like okay. would Is this like a Leonard be, Malton movie guide kind of thing? It would be close to like one book project a year, but like the record guides would be updated every two to three years. Oh. And the thing is, and so as a process of writing these books, uh, the database would expand and, you know, you would go mm-hmm. in and perhaps replace a bunch of reviews that might have been one or two sentences in 92, 93, and eventually by 2000, you start to get things that are about 300 to 500 words, or sometimes around that time, there would be reviews that would go as long as a 1,000, and we'd Mm. also have a a bunch of freelancers at that point because the website wound up piggybacking over the the books Mm. for a number of reasons. I mean, there's more information, it's more interactive, and then you're also able to keep up with the new releases at that point. Mm. The thing is that books became uh, harder to do at that point, too, because, like, we would wind up getting reviews for every single Deep Purple album, including the ones mm. that get are rated to, to one star. And, then, yeah. and while it's nice to read that in a book, that means it takes up five to six pages in a book. Yeah, makes sense. And, and so that, like, there becomes this uh, shift where we wind up having, you know, too much information to put into a book and then more mm-hmm. people at access it on the website, and then the the data on the website uh, gets licensed out to so many different outlets, to retail yeah. outlets and now to streaming outlets, and that's how the database, which is now uh, TiVo's database, because through oh, different, different, cor- different corporate restructurings and acquisitions, uh, that's the official name of the co- company, and All mm-hmm. Music is a separate property, that licenses the TiVo database to publish on all music. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So how how's what's the breakdown now? You work in Austin. I'm mm-hmm. guessing your counterparts like Steve Huey and Ned Raggett and Heather Ferris or whatever you say her name. Ferris. Um, I love Ferris. Okay. I love yeah. her by the way because she, she talks a lot about indie rock in the 80s oh, and she, 90s. She, and that's my she's, she's fantastic. We are. Yeah. We're longtime friends. She was at the Daily with me back in college as well. So. Oh, wow. Cool. So, um, so you're all probably spread out somewhere. So How- the, the headquarters is in Ann Arbor, and there's been freelancers, oh. and then there's been people like Steve, who was with All Music for a while before he headed out to L.A. to, you know, make it into bigger things. Yes. Now, are you assigned? Is there like a managing editor that's assigning everybody? And then, boy, I got a million questions about this. Are you assigned? If so, are you assigned by specialty? You have, or you know, are you reviewing all genres, or do you have like Steve, Tom? Sorry, Tom is our go-to guy for these four categories here. How does the breakdown work? It is uh, roughly people roughly have beats, and there are okay. managing managing assignment editors to. Uh, Tim Sendra really takes uh, a lot of a lot of that duty, mm-hmm. but uh, Heather Fairs also is involved with it as 
as am I, and John Bush. But uh, mm-hmm. the so with assignments, usually it's uh, Tim, Heather, and myself that uh, does some sort of master assigning. Okay. And uh, there's a smaller group of people that show up on re- weekly assignment meetings, and we go through and see what's coming out and see what's uh, what our customers are requesting as well and mm-hmm. try to uh, start much of a balance of trying to cover as much possible as we can. Like, you try to keep abreast of, like, what's being talked about in certain publications, including not just general interests but, like, specialized interests. And then also there are some things that are just givens for assignments. You know that mm-hmm. if uh, Katy Perry has a new album, it has to be covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then people do have uh, beats. There are some people that do a little more indie rock, as you said. Heather does a lot mm-hmm. of that. As mm-hmm. does Tim. Tim uh, Andy mm-hmm. Kelman does a lot of R&B. Yep. I do a lot of country. Uh, mm-hmm. There may be cases where people sort of bend what they're they're doing a little bit, like mm. the. But usually at this point, it's, it helps things keep rolling along. It's like if we have Matt Collar doing a certain amount of jazz, Tom Jerk doing, mm. doing some, some Latin. Uh, but everybody really listens to a lot of different things and pays okay. attention to, to a broad, broad amount of things. Okay. And how many reviews do you write a day? Oh, that that varies because there are other elements of my job, like like I said about like assignments or like uh, mm-hmm. a- editorial work, on, okay. uh, and also uh, in maintaining standards for the department. So I would say in the course of a week, generally I try to do between ten and twenty pieces, which includes both reviews and biographies. Okay, and some, you know, some things take longer than others. You know, yeah. it's both both a question of like it's not even necessarily the amount of time that it takes to engage with a particular record but sometimes bios can be very easy sometimes they can they can be very difficult and yeah. sometimes the same thing with records so yeah okay do you have a preference which one you write i've always preferred doing reviews but i enjoyed the challenge of doing a bio now because I think that more people are reading bios than reviews. I, I it's at this weird point in the in the shift of how things are being covered in the digital landscape is that I think the bio is seen uh, more on streaming services than reviews. Mm-hmm. But definitely uh, publicists and music geeks prefer the reviews. Yeah, because yeah, they true. want to engage with because it helps. Sell the record uh, either to a wider audience or to one person that really wants to engage deeply with a review. So I'm trying. I'm finding like the bio to be an interesting challenge at this point. Okay. Okay. As much as any music lover, I think would say that critiquing albums would be like a dream job for them. I've actually done it before, and it's not that easy because you uh, run <laughs> you run out of ways to say great or awesome or whatever. Pretty yep. quickly, you know what I mean. That's that's very true. Um, yes. I think that it's it's hard because I think that there's often a preconception that a uh, music critic is either an advocate or a scold. Like you're either trying trying to enthusiastically push for a specific record, or you're um, like liking to take the piss out of something. And yeah. what you really should be trying to focus on in my opinion is like to try to focus on 
not the things that makes a record similar, but like what makes something a little bit different. And those might be very subtle differences, but you're trying to, but if you can really focus on what makes something not quite the norm, mm-hmm. that's when you start being able to open up and start to articulate different avenues of expression for. Uh, let's go with the third, let's go with the third desert island disc while I'm trying to regain my thought. So let's go. Uh, think of another third, a third track that you would want to take with you. Let's see. Um, so we've roughly done something from my childhood and something from middle school, and so <laughs> so maybe we'll go to a high school f- favorite. Okay. And I will choose one. Two, did you just say warrant? No, no, I definitely did not say. One, two, three. I was I was counting down. I did not listen to warrant. I spent. I actually. Um, I, oh, I, I had that would have been mind blowing. <laughs> I, I have, a, I still have a bit of an aversion to uh, Warrant and hair metal, but I do like Death Leopard quite a bit. Yeah, there you but, go. But but for me, but for I, I think I will pick uh, the replacements. Of course. Um, yeah. uh, but I will pick All Shook Down. And a wooden coat of put the checkbook to my head. Temple an emperor's chicken. Some shit on the needle, like your That is very much like the end of high school years for for, oh, for me, God. and I can understand hating that album, but it's like a very evocative record for for me at, at that okay. point. And I kind of like how it's sort of like, like things are falling apart. I like I, I kind of like messiness sometimes. Okay, is there a particular song off the album? Um, we'll go with the title track. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I came to the replacements late. I was not digging on them in high school necessarily, but um, I came around later. To this day, I cannot get into that album. Uh, it's just, it bores me. But do you like uh, 14 songs, the Westerberg record? Uh, I like it better than that, yeah. Okay. Um, I, uh, his solo stuff is pretty spotty for me, too. When it gets... It, it's all like over you're the kind of a country, You're kind of like a country, alt-country guy, and I have moments like that, but it doesn't... Like, I used to like Wilco, and now they just bore me to tears. I, and I know that's not a popular thing to say, but they do. Well, you see, uh, that's kind of my problem with Wilco as well. It's like I, I kind of have a problem with uh, good taste sometimes. Like, good taste... <laughs> That I respect, but I, I actually prefer something that's a little gaudier. I mean, I would, yeah. I, I always, like in terms of 
country, I tend to listen to more contemporary mainstream country than I do alt country. I would rather listen to a Luke Bryan who is kind of kind of tacky in a lot of respects, but mm. you know, it's kind kind of honestly tacky. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Now, I will say, I was, again, going back to the Mormon upbringing, I was anti-hair metal for most of my life until I read Chuck Closerman's book, Fargo Rock City, <laughs> and that opened my mind and eyes to a Pandora's box of great stuff. And now, even Warrant, I would have been shocked if you had said Warrant, not because they're bad, but that doesn't seem like a music critic thing to say, but I can see the good in almost any of those kinds of bands. I have a real soft well, spot for that stuff now. Well, my my uh, good friend Maura Johnson is uh, an excellent critic of all things hair metal. Oh, she nice. grew up she grew up loving all of that stuff, and I and she knows it inside out. So. Okay, cool. So. Well, good. Okay, so I remembered what my question was from earlier. One thing that I I don't know if it's a question more of a statement. One thing I I really appreciate about all music, and this is what I think the value is that you're bringing, and you've touched on it is I, I see all music more as where I go for like a historical record versus, you know, whether a new album is worth buying or not. And mm-hmm. that goes into the second part of this conversation I wanted to have with you, which is around, you know, do we even really need music criticism at all? But I, I will say that I, I look to all music not so much to tell me what's good or bad. You know, some, like Rolling Stone, like you were saying, I – Sometimes they're just a little too snobby about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing that drives me crazy about Bob Boylan over at All Songs Considered. Is the uh-huh. uh, it seems like a nice guy, but he is the biggest music snob, and it just pisses me off that the guy will yeah. not open his mind to the great. You know, give me some tears for fears for crying out loud, Bob Boylan. You know. Anyway, mm-hmm. so I the thing that I look to all music is it for is to not be bigoted or prejudiced about that kind of stuff. I want, like you were saying, an honest description of genre and what's good and bad within a genre, and I appreciate that so much. Is that sort of a mission statement for the website? Do do you even think that way? I would say that it's definitely been part of the conception of the website. Like me and my uh, good friend Chris Woodstra, when we were first really – working at this in 93 through 95, 96, uh, you know, we, we both had extremely broad tastes and we liked uh, mm-hmm. the trash as well as like the ser- serious stuff. And then you, and you want to treat both with levels of respect. And I think people like to project a certain persona with what they like sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's why, why something like Wilco, who is a good band, who mm-hmm. I do, I do find that, them dull on occasion, but I and same thing with the national and you know there's you know and and you know I I I still respect people that are very very much uh-huh. into these these bands because they are objectively good bands, but then yeah. but I think that when you start to just look at at things through a matter of good taste, you aren't trying to see what like the trashier stuff sort sort of is, and like there's reason why. Uh, like one hit wonders click or why yeah. there's a lot of, a lot of people that, uh, engage with something that seems terrible. Like you could even argue Nickelback for that point, which mm-hmm. I think that I, I've been, I think my early reviews per, were very harsh and I think perhaps a little smug, but mm. this is like the whole point of like people start to think of 
the concept of populism as like you're trying to just justify what's popular, but more, right. I think like the real idea is like you're trying to figure out why people are really into to mm-hmm. listening to a, a particular thing. Like it can be interesting to engage on why millions of people listen to Nickelback, and then mm-hmm. you can move from there. But mm-hmm. um, you know, definitely for when we were considering the start of all music, like when you talked with like a lot of bands that might have had one hit. Uh, they might have had a deeper catalog than that sometimes. Yeah. They might not right. as, but also it might have been just enough to have like one great single too. Mm-hmm. And you, mm-hmm. and that also doesn't devalue their art because there's a whole, whole range of ways we connect with music. You know, you don't need yeah. to just listen to OK Computer in the dark on headphones. You might want, yeah. want to listen to, uh, Dance All Days by from my, there you show. go. So, yeah. I saw you post on Facebook the other day that it was um, that you had received the reissue of Jet's Get Born album, yeah, and it looked like it had come in the mail. And I yep, started thinking, yep. oh, is that how it works for Tom? Does do the labels have you on their distribution list, and so they're just mailing you everything in hopes that you're gonna you're gonna review it, or does it funnel through all all music? How does that process it's, work? It, it's uh, both. You know, some stuff okay. goes to all music specifically. Something. Sometimes they get things just digitally um, and not get physical product. Uh, some labels send me everything. Some send certain things. And some okay. uh, uh, sometimes labels from that out to publicists. Some publicists are are really great. Um, you know, like there's a, like Kerry Baker at Conqueroo is, uh, he works his, his acts to the bone and he's, uh, and he's uh, very, Responsive. There's some publicity houses that will never respond to you, even if you. Yeah. And so, so you know, it's a you don't necessarily get everything. It's not necessarily okay. what you you think, but you know, there are some places that will send send me things. And like the Jet thing that surprised me is that you know, usually we go through in terms of making assignments, we call certain labels and certain uh-huh. distributors, and we, so we have an idea of what's coming to out in the future, but I somehow just completely missed that uh, Rhino Warner was putting out Jet, and I'm still sort of surprised yeah. that there's an audience for a delight exactly. issue. Uh, probably there's more of an audience for that than um, uh, like a few years ago, Three Doors Down got a double disc uh, <laughs> deluxe reissue right. now, and I'm sure, sure what happened with that is that Three Doors Down sold a certain amount of and yeah. it seemed like it would have been a profitable thing, but no. I don't think people there's dedicated three days down. No, three doors down. I can't imagine. I got a little side story for that. I had a guy on here named Mark Absec. I don't know if you know who that is. He no, I don't. Is, he's Donnie Iris's music partner, basically. Oh, so he, wow. Yeah, so he was a member of Wild Cherry, and he co-wrote Alia. You know, and oh, I still love that song. Donnie. Yes, amen, love that brother. Song. Yes. So he is—he's uh, basically Donnie Iris's musical partner or whatever. And um, he had written a song that was at first rejected to be on Santana's Supernova or Supernatural album. Really? Yes. Really? Yes, but it made it onto the deluxe, you know, two-disc collector. Yeah, that, that came recently out later. came out. Yeah. Yes. But because by then no one, anyone who was going to buy Santana's natural, Supernatural album had done so already, 
he had got like 250 bucks at a bottle of wine or something like that. That is fascinating. That's the kind of story <laughs> that just that says so much about where where Don't we are. Don't you think? Oh yes. yeah, because I think that even ten years ago, you probably could have put out a double disc oh, version of that, and absolutely. it would have sold a little bit. But I'm not sure if that that's the kind of hit that was overly saturated in the marketplace, and so yes. it was, came out at the peak of CDs. And I'm yes. not sure if it's really loved. You know, exactly. I don't, it's nobody's I, favorite album. It was right. Flash in the pan. Yeah, there might be some people that listen to it all the time, but I don't think there's that many. And so, exactly, it's very different than if you're putting out, yeah. okay, computer. You know, yeah, exactly. that you, you're gonna, still loved and it's still growing yeah. in an audience year after year. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So the guys, you know, he almost made it to the album that would have made him a multi, multi, multi millionaire close to it anyway. oh. but instead he gets a thank you and a bottle of wine because he has a track on the deluxe issue that no one cares about the i think that's soul. really fascinating exactly the I poor soul i i feel for him because here yeah. by all rights he probably should have gotten <laughs> yes no kidding he's now a patent lawyer in uh, cleveland so he's doing fine but I'm still sure. i felt bad for the guy anyway okay so let's talk about music criti- – oh, one, que- one last question about music, the way you write. How many times do you have to listen through an album before you feel like you're comfortable enough to review it? Again, it varies. I, ho- I hope to do – there are some times where it's two, but there's some times where it's seven. It's somewhere okay. between there. Uh, That's what I figured. There, there are some things which uh, both the dictates of your deadlines and what the content of the record okay. might and change then- things. Do you ever feel like you're asked to review something that is not in your wheelhouse? Like if I, I'm not really a huge prog guy. Or let's say, let's say Wilco. You know, if someone sent me the new Wilco, um, I can't say I would listen with open ears because I kind of don't like Wilco, you know? There are some things that would be a hard no for me that just because I don't feel like I have the time to research. I know I spent many years, like, embracing the challenge and having the time to research and get a sense of the genre and get the sense of the artists. And I'll do that, like, if it's, like, within things that are my wheelhouse and I can do something like Wilco, and I think that I'm fair because, um, you know, there are Wilco records I like. I, I like the mm-hmm. self-titled one for and mm-hmm. uh, Star Wars. You know, they do Star good Wars records. And there's some things like Prague where I know a little bit of. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, if I feel like I'm, I don't have enough of a basis to give it a fair shot, I will probably see if we can find somebody else to do it. Okay. But, cool. but we're, pr- we're pretty, we're pretty good, like, in terms, like, we always wish that we could cover more that, than we do. Mm-hmm. And so we are pretty good at, like, getting somebody 15, 20 assignments or five if that, that's what they're, schedule dictates and that's okay. all something that would fit what their uh expertise is okay now we we cover we try as i mentioned earlier we try to cover kind of the the money side of my of the artists that i talked to for this and you're not i'm not going to get you off the hook just because you're a writer i mean i assume this is your full-time gig and you put in a lot of hours and are you able to Pay your bills comfortably as you know, senior editor of all music or whatever it is that you are. Yes, it's a salaried position, and I'm fortunate. Okay, okay. Now, are you married? Do you have kids? I am not married. I am currently dating. I didn't know if you had a whole family to provide for, and this still 
made it it was still okay or or what the situation was okay yeah. good that's what i wanted to know um now secondly let's talk about music criticism in general um as i mentioned the value i think that all music brings is that it's more of a historical record of what music is out there whereas you know even rolling stone magazine now their album review section which used to be the most you know the the most desirous part of the whole magazine is now only a page or two and um i'm and music it's like a faucet was turned on full blast and we can't no one can turn it off there's just constant music barraging you all the time so do we really even need critics to tell us what's good and what's bad and what we should listen to or is everything so micro targeted that you don't really need them anymore I personally think that there needs to be critics and journalists to provide a first draft of history at the very least, and mm. also to provide some sort of context into what you're listening. And I think that, uh, you know, with everything that we gain, we lose things, et cetera. And so, like, the method of digital listening means that you can often listen to things without context. Like, mm-hmm. it's very easy to scan and, like, hear things that you like. And, so, you know, a lot of people are just fine with doing that, and that's great. I'm not putting them down. I mm-hmm. think that's how most people – and it's not just how most people react. That is actually how even the hardcore music geeks or mm-hmm. critics, that should be their first reaction is, what does this make me feel? What do I like yeah. about this? Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, like, if you just um, stay at that level and just flip from song to song, uh, you're starting to lose, like, the sense of time and place and personality that really is important to understanding the music. Now, the, the opposite thing can be, like, where you get a lot of profiles of bands that don't have a story yet. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's part of celebrity journalism. But I still, and, you know, there's a place for that as well. But I think that there's a real place in trying to, like, tell the story of how something came to be. And, you know, there's stories that aren't being told. Like, uh, to go back to Katy Perry, I think that this whole Witness album has been a very botched release. Mm-hmm. That would be a very interesting story to tell at some point. Yeah. And, you know, it'd be, and it also would be interesting to see how sort someone like Lana Del Rey works in the studio or mm-hmm. because you get hints of it. You get to, you get to read a Dan Auerbach interview and, or somebody does a blog post mm-hmm. and see that she's in total agency of what she's doing. And, you know, so I think that's important because I think a lot of people think it, criticism is just a consumer's guide. And I know that I am involved with a very detailed consumer's mm-hmm. guide, but it's not just like thumbs up and thumbs down. Um, right. It's, you know, criticism it should be nuanced. There's a lot of different things. And, like, something's worth listening to even if it's not great sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes True. something bad is worth listening to. <laughs> yeah. So so I think there's a real need, and I think it's unfortunate that the marketplace is not supporting really deep uh, criticism or reporting mm-hmm. on specific styles and genres and so everybody gets to just talk about the new jay-z album that comes out right now yeah and you know jay-z is certainly great and worth worthy of coverage but it's like all the energy goes to 
the big album of the week, and then so much yeah. co- coverage happens, and then it fades away for the next week. Yeah. So, so my my primary concern is that everything is just constant churn. So there's not a lot of reflection on, say, mm. the new Jay Z record because everybody has to publish something right mm-hmm. as it's coming out. True. And uh, and also, I think that the shift towards listening through streaming services were, uh, who benefit from just pushing discover playlists to you all the time. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, 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 that doesn't emphasize the album or the artist. It emphasizes the experience of, like, you listening to new music instead of really digging deeply. And I think that's a problem. Yeah, true. Yeah, and one other... Um Thing that I, I, well, let me ask you a question. Do you find that are the, and maybe you don't even know this, are the demographics of people who, who read your writing or care about all music or even care about criticism in general, are they aging with the crit- critics, or do you find that younger audiences still want to and are hungry to read that kind of stuff? Because I feel like, well, go ahead. No, please go ahead. Well, I was, you know, when you were talking earlier, I was thinking about so. I'm a sports guy, too, and I watch PTI every day. I DVR mm-hmm. PTI. When I get home from work, I watch PTI before I do anything else. And you could apply that same, you know, head-to-head kind of debate of Katy Perry versus Taylor Swift, and the whole argument or dissection of, a, of an artist's catalog or whatever is summarized in a 90-second, you know, head-to-head, one yeah, loud voices see. clashing segment and it's done and then we're done yeah i i'm not a fan of that i'm not a, really a fan of like treating music as a team bunch of rivals you know team katie versus team mm-hmm. swifty or i'm not really i don't like treating it like sports because yeah. you know it's it's very different and sure there's going to be rivalries between different fan camps and perhaps even the artists but it doesn't really say much. It, say, it says something about the culture. It doesn't say much about the music at that True. point. And I think that we have this whole thing where there has to be a consensus and, like, everybody is just a genius or terrible, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, Shades of Grey are, is infinitely more interesting than, than Absolutes. Yeah. You know, because, like, even, yeah. like, the great, greatest albums of all, all time, if you look from them at them from a certain angle, you could easily pick the them apart <laughs> you know thrill, thriller is not consistent all the way through in a lot right. of ways yeah so so i don't okay. know yeah i i think that too we're in such a hot take culture that it mm-hmm. just seems to be like whoever is kind of loud loudest and snarkiest wins the debate and that can be summed up in a tweet and then that's all the the thoughtful consideration somebody's artistic output gets you know what and, i mean and and I think that it's also unfortunate that knowing exactly what readers click on has mm-hmm. really hurt uh, publishing in general because yeah. um, everybody will click on the big sensation of the day and there are other stories out there and not everybody has a hot take. And also sometimes there's really – an album can only sustain one narrative sometimes. It's, yeah. Some things might be popular, but just not that, that interesting. Or you have this this thing with uh, the OK Computer reissue that's come out, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, 
it's had a lot of really good writing about it, but I'm personally not that interested in reading about it right now. Now, mm. uh, of course, the converse is I was all over the Sgt. Pepper reissue. So, yeah. you, know, yeah. you know, that's personal taste too. Okay. But, it, but it's also unfortunate that both of those things suck up a lot of uh, yeah. oxygen that could possibly be used for other things. Yeah, I agree. My other, the other issue I kind of have with current uh, criticism, and I meant to look before we got on the phone and I forgot, but I like going to Metacritic.com yeah. if you're familiar with that. Definitely. And um, the last, I kind of dropped off going to Metacritic. I haven't been on there for a while. For one, they changed their UI and it's too confusing. I agree. And, and secondly, um, every album, every uh, album review was green. There would be one or two maybe yellows in there or maybe in a red, but it was well, really sort of a group think. It felt to me like like we're going to unanim- unanimously dump all over Limp Biscuit. Not that I'm defending Limp Biscuit, but it's no. just kind of the easy target. You know what I mean? And I just feel well, like, doesn't are there no descending voices out there that are just like, you know what, you guys, you love this new Wilco album? It is boring. I mean, I'm right. Wilco. Right. I mean, well, I well, – Two things like Limp Bizkit, I don't think are a good band, but they're an interesting band. Like I think uh, Fred Durst is an interesting personality, even though uh-huh. I don't like the music. I mean, like he kind of tries in some ways, and he kind of really doesn't in others. Yeah. But that that's but that's actually that's actually a point of intrigue. Like you can say, like you know, he he is trying to be like this filmmaker over here. Yeah. And he's trying to be he's trying to be sensitive, and he just has bad instincts, and that's something he can build something that's interesting that's just not like consensus culture. Uh, two things that, that are going on there is like, I also think Metacritic sometimes cherry picks the reviews in a strange fashion where they sort mm. of push them into a positive place or into a negative pl- place. Like I think that they, that sometimes I've seen reviews in my mind that gets ex- get excerpted negatively when I think that they're, they're sort of mm. positive and that, that helps uh, skew it. And I also think that uh, lost my train of thought a little bit, but but I think that there is this in terms of like consensus opinion. I think that perhaps editors are also looking for you know articles or reviews that will help bring in clicks, and uh, mm-hmm. therefore they're mm-hmm. playing for the people that are. T- you know, Team Beyonce, like they really right. want to have something that supports it, and you know. You know, there's sometimes when people are have a contrary view, it's not like, you know, it's not performative. Like I mm. know, like uh, there have been a lot of people that uh, criticize Chuck Eddy, Chuck Eddy for being uh, just a crank. As some, mm-hmm. but I, you know, he can be cranky, but he's mm-hmm. he, you know, I think that he is he genuinely engages with the music and it mm-hmm. has to sound good to him per- first before he wants to go any further. I mean, you read his new, new book, uh, Terminated for Reasons of Taste, you can really uh, see like how he engages with with both records he's found in Dollar Bin or something. Okay. That's brand new. Interesting. Yeah, I uh, I just feel like I feel like there's such a groupthink mentality kind of everyone is so polite um, and everything is getting gets good reviews for the most part. And if they don't, it's a hot take, bad review. Like I'm going to see how far I can go the other direction. To I'm going to write a counter think piece on this thing, 
or it's an easy target that of yeah. course we're going to give something a bad review. I just don't. I don't. I don't know. It, it doesn't. It, everything. So much of it, I should say, feels biased to me. Like people mm-hmm. are bringing in a preconceived opinion before they get there. I don't know. Just some and, frustration. And, and I also think that groupthink can happen on like uh, social media too. It's like people oh, yeah. just want, just wind up talking with their their crews about the same thing. And you know, I can be guilty of that that too. But then you're you know. You, your yeah. crew can be united because of you already have similar tastes or sensibilities too. Yeah, true. But that, yeah. but that is a problem that you can only want to hear opinions that justify your own taste. And I think that's really a terrible thing that you yeah. should like it. Like to me, I would prefer to read something that uh, doesn't confirm my own taste mm-hmm. because it makes me think like, well, do I, do I really feel this way? Or maybe like yeah. somebody can actually open it up to a different world. And I, Very and that's exciting. I mean, that's also exciting about reading younger writers who mm-hmm. may have grown up to on the same thing that, that you have, but they have completely different takes on it. Yeah. And that's good because you don't want to just like stay, you stay in the same spot. You want to, yeah. keep, you can keep having a lot of different thoughts, even on your favorite music as you grow older. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Time for a fourth desert island disc. Bring us a new song. What are you going to um, do? I will uh, bypass college, and like from the early days of all music, I'm going to go back to to Nick Lowe, and uh, they they call it rock. Shake and Pop is the same song, a little bit slower, but I always, one thing that I really like about Nick is how he comments on the industry really well. I like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, I love um, I love my label as well, which is probably the best song written for record label mm-hmm. ever, but that yeah. one is like really knowing uh, about the industry. Yeah. Good one. I, um, I always knew who Nick Lowe was, but I didn't pay that close attention until... Uh, I was in Borders, good old Borders, Rip uh-huh. Borders, and um, the uh, the Convincer album had just come out, and the it's on the end rack, and it's that beautiful shade of blue, and he's yep. looking at, he's staring at you holding a cigarette with a smile on his face that to me just looks like he's daring you to pick up this album and listen to it. Exactly. I dare there's, you to see what's there's in There's a little bit of smirk there. 
Yes. And I could, it was so provocative. The, the beautiful shade of blue with his, with the look on his face. And it happened to be in a listening station. And I popped it in, and Home Wrecker is on there. And it is so just dark and beautiful. And I fell in love. I bought the album right away, and then I became a diehard Nick Lowe fan. Perfect. <laughs> yes. That's my Nick Lowe story for you. So, okay. So I thought of three more all music questions, then we got to move on to some of your lists. Uh, number one, why on earth does all music not have a good app? What is your problem? I that is something that's completely out of my control. Okay. I have no idea what that's a separate department. I have no input on that. It's ridiculous, Tom. Yeah, uh, something like, I mean, you're basically the IMDb of music, and IMDb has a wonderful app that is completely user friendly and interactive and yet you guys can't get it together and it really pisses me off you used to have one that was just for new releases so you would list the new releases and if you if you tapped on that and then it was like similar artists or whatever you could eventually kind of dig into something you wanted to see but it's not there and it should be such a no-brainer i agree it would be nice i it would be nice if it happened yeah, okay. So that's a rant. Rant number two, the ads are pissing me off. I eventually had to pay, I think I, I think it was a dollar a month or something like that, whatever yeah. it was. I paid the 12 bucks to make the ads go away. And I get it, you want to monetize your hard work and everything, but being a loyal person who came around 16, 17 years ago to watch my favorite beloved website become bogged down and slowed down by all these ads, it's just depressing. And I'm sure you got to do what you got to do, but I just wanted to tell you that. Yes, I understand. And again, now that uh, the website is a separate company from um, the company that I work for, mm-hmm. I I have no control okay. over that, and I also understand the financial reasons for it because sure. you know it's it goes into what we were talking about earlier. It's hard to keep, maintain outlets for sure. uh, different voices, and it you know it'd be nice if the ads weren't as intrusive as they are, but that's sort yeah. of the reality of it. Yeah, I ha- yeah, I know that. I know that in my heart, but it doesn't make me happy. I but, totally get it. Totally yeah. get it. Now, has anyone ever, has a, do you ever interface directly with the artist? Has anyone ever uh, come to you to complain about one of your reviews or thank you? Do you ever go to them directly for a quote or for information um, to help you write anything? Or are you completely separate on your own island? Well, definitely. There's, uh, especially since the the text and information can show up in so many different places. Uh, the, the artists do have feedback, and so, sometimes it's very helpful, and sometimes it's uh, angry. Sometimes uh, it runs the gamut, and so we do get feedback. And uh, there are also um, artists that are very complimentary and mm. both both for uh the website as a whole i mean you know people in order to be part of naris the uh national academy of recording arts and sciences you need to have an entry on mm-hmm. all music and so it's uh mm. you know it performs a major role in the industry as well so you know people want to make sure that it's right and we try to do the best we can uh, but, you know, it is a big database and some things yeah. fall through the cracks. 
Uh, but I definitely know there's been some artists that have been very kind and some that aren't as happy. Okay. And how do I get you to upload correct album art? Because that drives me crazy, too. Hall and Oak, one of my favorite bands of all time. Top three I love them of all too. time. Love them Big too. Bam Boom does not have a thumbnail art uh, um, album art on there. How can I that know, be? I know that there was some... Uh, so I'm looking there right now. I, I think that there's been just some sort of weird licensing issue that the website's had, and I don't really? know the specific... Yeah, I'm not sure what the specifics are there, uh, but, yeah, I understand, like, huh. not having the art because it used to be there and it's no longer there, that is pretty pretty frustrating. I just wondered if it was like in iTunes, like a copy-and-paste kind of thing and that somebody just hadn't done it yet. Every time uh, I see one, I want to, like, email somebody and be like, can you not find the album to art there, to- Big Bam Boom, come on. There, there may be a contact on the website somewhere. I don't know off the top of my head. Mm, okay. But I I can tell you that it's probably a larger systematic error than the fact that it just hasn't come around to it. Okay. Okay, just curious. These were my these were my complaints. And, uh, and I'm glad to hear them. Good. <laughs> As you can tell, I have a very intimate relationship you're, with you. You're, you're and passionate the about it, which I appreciate. I am. I am. You don't go somewhere every single day for 17 straight years and not create an opinion on what you're doing. <laughs> Touche. So, yes. So, uh, one other thing, and this is more just a, a, a commentary. Um, I saw You posted something on Facebook the other day, and I noticed Michael Gilmore liked it. And I thought, how what a what what a fraternity to be a member of. And I don't mean to sound sexist. I hope that's not it. But just Michael I like to think Gilmore of a community. Yeah. Yes. What a community to be a part of. That Michael Gilmore knows who you are and is liking something that you're saying. And I uh, I've, I've reached out to him to have him on here too, but I never heard back. But um, anyway, I just thought you're just you're the most. You're the luckiest guy I I know, probably. Oh, and you, I don't mean to very, say that you didn't deserve this, but man, if yeah. I could switch places with anyone, uh, that's that's very sweet. I really I really do appreciate it. Is, and I also realize how fortunate I am. And like somebody like uh, uh, Michael Gilmore, I mean, I've not had personal conversations with him, but it's you know. Yeah, that's the that's the positive thing about social media is that you get some some Very sort of true. interactions, and you know, of course, I've been a long time admirer of his work, and he's he mm-hmm. still does some amazing things. He and does. So, anyway, so, and it's it is also interesting for for me, like seeing seeing social media, uh, which I can be an active participant in. Like mm-hmm. you get an idea, like it's something where you get to. Do, not only understand the personality, but perhaps like the thought processes mm-hmm. behind the criticism a little bit more. So it doesn't necessarily like sometimes I think that there's like that snobbiness that you were talking about. Like yeah, this, yeah. this guy in the high tower that that has nothing but um, you know opinions to yeah. hand down from on high, and I really don't think that's the case for for me, and also for most of the people that I know. I mean, they they yeah. have. The, you know, my colleagues, um, both at uh, All Music TiVo and, like, throughout the criticism world in general, I feel like they're really 
they're passionate. They're both passionate yeah. about about the music and they're passionate about how they can articulate their passion and to bring it to to a lot of other people that's always wanting to engage a conversation to yeah. uh, to, for, to further it. It's never wanting to shut somebody down. And I think that's yeah. the, to me, that's the biggest uh, misconception about criticism is like that. And surely there are some people that really fulfill that stereotype either uh, in, in music, movies, art, where they are the kind of stuffy. Uh, so, uh-huh. But, but the people that I know, um, like if, whenever I like go out to uh, uh, Mopop's PopCon uh, in a- mm. in April, like that, that's what, you know you have this hybrid of popular criticism and academia, and people are really just engaged and excited sure. about, to to be talking about things. And I and it, for me, it's also fun to be on Facebook and Twitter and like being engaged sure. with. People I don't know, and yeah. I, and you you wind up getting to know a lot of other people that just really love and take this stuff seriously, and that's what yeah, that's what I like. Good, good, yeah. It's uh, I have to fight back the urge to comment on a lot of the things you, well, you, you post because I'm you so full of post. opinions. <laughs> I know, I know, but I don't want to be that guy. But like the other day, you posted something about black grapes, but you didn't call them out by name. But when I was mm-hmm. reading whatever it was you posted, and I thought. He's writing about black grape. That makes me so happy, you know. You just don't, you know, you don't get that from other people very often. That's true. And I was, and unfortunately the album was was pushed back, and I was all set to uh, review it this week. The singles are pretty good, by the way. Really? I'm I'm really surprised that this actually sounds like a good black grape album. Oh, I'm excited. I I was in, my wife and I went on vacation to London and Paris a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I love Q Magazine. And so whenever yep. I go to England, which is not very often, but it, it had been 20 years since I was last there. And, in fact, the last time I was in England, the main article was on the release of Oasis Definitely or um, uh, Be Here Now. And then there was another article within there on Black Rape. And I bought <laughs> the first Black Rape album while I was there. And so then I'm I'm in London, and I have to buy a Q Magazine while I'm here. Liam Gallagher's on the cover, and there's an article inside on the new Black Grape album. It was like, you know, uh, um, deja vu had happened. So, so I was really excited. Change. Yes. So it was. Uh, so I was really excited to see the Black Grape was coming back, but that's a, that's a bummer that it didn't. It uh, got pushed. Oh, it's, still, it's still coming out. It'll be out in August. And oh, good. I think okay. I think it's going to be pretty good. Good. I hope so. I was not loving that last uh, Happy Mondays album, and. Um, so I'm hoping that they can regain a little And comfort. apparently uh, there's also a, a new Monday's record in the works. Like really? something, something that's approaching the original lineup. It looks like Sean Ryder wound up getting a new management that wound up getting both groups reunited. And it just happened Good. that the Black, the Black Grape record happened first because oh, just came in and Kermit. So. Okay. Oh, killer. See, I can't have conversations like this with too many rock critics. You know what I mean? <laughs> and if you and if you are going to talk about them, they're going to put them down. That's far ranging. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank Good. you. Good. Okay. So let's go to Desert Island Disc number five, and then we're going to dive into the list. Oh, I guess um, I will go with just to go with Chuck Berry's Great Twenty Eight, just because he. He's really? passed this this year, and Chuck is probably my yeah. favorite. So, 
songwriter, and Promised Land is probably this my favorite song, and I think this song that probably should be our national anthem. Oh, wow. Nothing says America like the promised land. So. No, that's very true. Um, speaking of our national anthem, the episode of our podcast was Lee Greenwood. And so uh, I, I saw that. I'm very curious to, about that. Yeah, I was kind of proud of it. I'm not, I'm not a, I, first, of all, first and foremost, I should say I hate politics of all stripes. Secondly, I, I do not, yes, and I do not lean right. And I'm certainly not a Trump supporter, but I thought he had carved a real interesting career for himself where he really doesn't have to do anything except sit back and accept invitations to go to rodeos or car races or fireworks shows and sing that song for buckets of money. You uh-huh. know what I mean? And so I wanted to talk to him about that. Like, let's get an idea of who you are and how you feel about it. So anyway, that was... Uh, and it's also interesting this. because it, ne- it wasn't the biggest hit when it first came no. out in 84 no. and it's like it's a song that really has grown over the years yep and it's been taken we talked about this it's been sort of pretty much co-opted or taken ownership by especially the republican party and very much so so it really you know galvanizes their base and he didn't write it with that in mind in his mind it was more of a unifying aren't we all proud to be an american kind of a song but it, yep. it didn't that's not where where its life took it. And so he's basically the torchbearer of this song that means a lot to people and he's going to make what, a nice thing right, money doing Right, and then what do, you, what do you do at that point? Like the, right. And so yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, anyway, okay, it's the national anthem. Okay, well, good. All right, now let's get into some lists here. Uh, I want to know what album you hate that everyone loves. I don't know if everyone loves it. But I, I do have a hard time with uh, Frank Zappa in general. Oh, um, and I, I gave Freak Out another chance in, uh, last year, and I wound up liking it better than I remembered. But like once the mother stopped being involved with Zappa, like mm-hmm. I have a hard time with it, and I also. I'm not much of a Bob Marley fan. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, like I think it was, the funny thing is like being a huge fan of Stiff Records and Dave Robinson. Uh, he was instrumental in getting Legend together, but Legend mm-hmm. is also some 
something that just drives me crazy. And mm. I think that is just like a bunch of bad college experiences. Yeah, yeah. So. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I'm completely with you on Zappa. I don't, uh, I don't get it. But then again, I, I've come to the conclusion that it's music for other musicians to mm-hmm. think is interesting. And I'm not a musician. I don't know about you. So I play. Music, but, do you? Yeah, okay. I play guitar. So okay. But as a music appreciator, I just find it too difficult to enjoy. And can, I'm like that with a lot of bands. Sometimes Beck can be that way for me. A little I can too, sort of say that. Yeah. It's, um, well, it might be the, that there is a line that you can cross where it just seems like it's commentary on other music. Mm, like, yeah, and, and, so, so, and, and what, like for me, uh, Ween does it a lot better yeah. where, because there's, Joy and mm-hmm. uh, really good songs, like yeah. both both Dean and Jing can write. So yeah. that makes it different. Good one. Okay, good. I like that answer. Um, I'm not going to give my own answer to every one of these, but I. It's funny. I um, I got in a debate yesterday. I think it was over how much I dislike U2's "All That You Can't All You Can Leave uh, Behind." I'm not crazy. Whatever it is. I'm not crazy about that record either. No, I mean, it's okay. But it's yeah, U- and, but it's U two trying to be U two, and they that's been the their curse from that point forward. See, I agree, and um, I love U two, so I know that they can be a punching bag for a lot of people. And this sure. is not one of those situations. I'm not downing everything they do, but I feel like that album was such a sort of pop sellout kind of album. You know, it's a mm-hmm. we've been in the wilderness. People are not responding to our to our efforts to kind of push the envelope very well, let's go back and kind of rally the core again with some pop-friendly songs, and that's what this album is. And it just doesn't ring true to me. Stuck in a Moment is such a stupid song, I think. And I just think the the band that did I Will Follow would just laugh at the band that did All That You Can't Leave Behind or whatever it's called. I, I kind of agree with you on that. It's like pop did not work. Yeah. But, you know, Pop was them really trying to do things, and then they got scared. That was their yeah. first. That was their first misstep, like in yeah. terms of of sales, and like they got a backlash, and so they wound up just yep. going back to do what they do best. Yeah. And yeah, I, it was just too sleek for me. But it's mm-hmm. funny. I had written down in my notes weeks ago when I knew I was going to talk to you that album in particular, and then I also happened to get into a debate about it just yesterday. But okay. Uh, can you give me, and maybe this falls into Zappa or Bob Marley, another overrated artist? Somebody you just don't get it. Um, yeah, that, that really did fall into that. Um, okay. Let's see. Um, here, here's somebody that's prop, properly rated, but I just have a very hard time wanting to listen to him, is uh, Jimi Hendrix. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think that, that he is everything that people say is. Um mm-hmm. And he certainly, he he really was a trailblazer. The records are good, but I have a very hard time wanting to listen to the records. It's just, um, I I do wonder if it's like the management of the estate. Mm. It might be the over-familiarity of certain things via classic rock radio. But I haven't like, like turned the corner with Hendrix the way that I did with Doors. I think mm. Hendrix is way greater than The Doors. But For The sure. Doors, like, I kind of like listening to them as an artifact of the time, whereas mm-hmm. Hendrix, I, I can hear how he belonged to 
uh, latter half of the '60s, but I have a I have a hard time wanting to actually listen to Hendrix. Yeah, I uh, I com- I'm completely with you. Although I I don't mind listening to him, but everything you just said, I feel the same way about Janis Joplin. Um, uh-huh. I agree with that too. Yeah, I amazing voice. That doesn't, but that doesn't mean, unfortunately, that I want to listen to it very often. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Okay. Uh, cool. Okay, these are the big ones. Um, well, first, underrated. Is there a classic artist? It's more fun to go classic than it is a recent artist. Is there somebody who you it think is, is class- particularly underrated? In terms of like well-known classic, yeah, artists, like deserves to be kind of Robert, you know, in the- Robert Palmer. Really, Robert Palmer is uh, is an exceptional singer, interpreter, and he really tried a lot of different styles. And at times, like he that uh, prior to other people trying things out, he went yeah. new wave. He went new wave a little bit earlier than other people did. He he played with the little feet and was absolutely yeah. funky. And he he also knew how to. You know, do that addicted to love crossover. You yeah, know, he he's somebody that really should be considered one of the greats, but isn't. I can't believe you just said that because I'm gonna just. I, I'm sorry, I keep applying my own commentary, but no, that's fine. About uh, um, we'll say three or four years ago, I don't know what it was. I think I read some famous person listed "Sneaking Sally Through the Alley" as one of their favorite albums of all time, and I don't even remember who it was. And I was thinking, oh, I, you know, Robert Palmer, he, I, I'm so sick of Addicted to Love. I mean, I know that was a great song, but I don't need to hear it ever again. Sure. And so, but what is, is there more? Is there, should I be, am I sleeping on Robert Palmer? And so I go back into his older stuff, and it, you're right, it's incredible. And I bought that album, and I bought Clues, and I bought a few other ones. Oh, Clues is phenomenal. As oh. is Sneaking to Solid to the Alley, like uh, uh, my friend Chris O'Leary uh, who is Bowie songs and anybody uh, who, who yeah, everybody should check out pushing ahead of the dame and his book books on Bowie. He's, he's wonderful, but he really pointed out that that opening sequence of the first three songs that are just all segued together. That's just one of the greatest, uh, greatest openings to any album ever. And so, uh, yeah, good for you. Oh, well, I love thank, this. thank you. Good for you, Tom. Uh, okay. Let's go to the fade. Favorite album of all time? Oh, I have I have a hard time answering that one because, like, it just it, it tends to get a little bit boring. Um, but you know, really? Uh, well, just just because, like, you know, I have really loved uh, Exile on Main Street or no, something, something like, like, like that. that. But it, but it, it doesn't seem to be as. Um, but I think that I would probably uh, pick for today. I will. I'll pick uh, "Labor of Lust" from Nick Lowe to give back to mm. Nick. Uh, just just because I, in some ways, I sort of prefer "Jesus of Cool" because it's a bunch of forty fives. But "Labor uh-huh. of Lust" is uh, the sound of rock pile at their peak. Nice. So, and it's wow. So okay, so let me let me ask you about how you decide your favorite album because. Uh, my favorite album, it's easier for me to answer this question when it comes to music versus movies because there's the movie that I think is the best ever made, which is probably The Godfather, but then there's the movie that I want to watch, which is usually Roadhouse or Real Genius or something mm-hmm. like that. And But I can't claim those. I mean, they would probably be – so 
your all-time favorite has to be sort of a crossroads between the two. You know what I mean? Something you mm-hmm. enjoy to listen to but you know is also valuable and worth your time. Is that how you decide an answer like that, or do you go strictly comfort food? Like, when um, I'm, nothing makes me happier than Nick Lowe. I eat sort of comfort food, but I also think that he's also a hell of a writer and a, mm-hmm. a record maker, like, because he also, you know, his productions for Costello are great as well. And so it's like this intersection of um, comfort and sort and execution and ambition. Mm-hmm. Like, Nick's not as ambitious as you know, Pink Floyd or something like, like yeah. that. But, you know, there's also a lot to be said for, for subtlety. And, yeah. Okay. And so for, and also for me, it's like, uh, when I'm asked that question, I might go into the record. Like Nick was clearly on my mind because I mentioned him earlier and I started mm-hmm. out with Dave Edmonds. And so it goes into what I would want to watch right now. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you're a, Asking me about my favorite movie, you know, I might wind up, uh, you know, Jaws is a really good intersection of yeah. that too, too, because it's go. like, it's a genre movie that also has hints of something mm-hmm. that's a little bit deeper. And, but, um, I, I feel like you can't just go for the really ambitious, important albums. I think we wind up yeah. placing too much importance on important, like, or that mm-hmm. it has some sort of influence. You, you should go for some, uh, a collection of 10 to 14 songs that hold together really well because we also tend to overrate how deliberate an album is. You know, albums are essentially just pieces of commercial art. And, uh, yeah. and it's, it's a lot of times, you know, you know, people do go into the studio, especially 70s through probably 90s with the intention of putting together a journey but sometimes mm-hmm. they just, you know, knock out a record and they had to deliver it by the time, by a deadline. You know, yeah, that, very that true. can, that can be it. So, but we yeah. always, but, and a lot of the things that we think are intentional are something we ascribe to it. And yeah. so we tend, tend to overrate it when we canonize lists. Okay. That's, that's just my, my opinion. Okay. Uh, my favorite album of all time is the debut album by Credit House. That's a pr- that's a pretty great uh, answer as well. <laughs> yeah, um, Neil Finn's my favorite songwriter, and that album I, I I remember specifically when it became such. I was in a traffic jam in my car on a really hot summer day with my mom sitting next to me, and the AC was broken, and so we got off the freeway to try and go on side roads to get where we were going, and all the side roads were packed too. And um, so you're just sitting, we're sitting there just in the sweltering heat, sweating and uh, going nuts, kind of stir crazy because we can't move anywhere. And it's been knocked out for an hour. And I've got my case logic with a bunch of my CDs in it, you know, like back in the day. And uh, I'm sitting there in this moment of just total claustrophobia. And I think I want to hear something that reminds me of home. And it occurred <laughs> to me that Neil Finn in that moment is the closest thing to home. You know what I mean? It's that is like my home base, and so that's uh, and that was kind of I a love college it. thing, yeah. And so that's when that's when that out. It occurred to me that that's I love that album more deeply than anything else. So that's my favorite album of all time. That's a great answer. Yeah, I, thank you. 
Uh, I've, okay. I've been slightly obsessed with the world where you live <laughs> in the last year or so. Slightly obsessed? Uh, oh, with the, uh, the song? Yeah, I think that, yeah. I think that's just uh, if it, when it goes into the chorus, it's just just completely source. Yes, and you know that's become over the years the song off that album that's become probably my favorite. And mm-hmm. I never realized this. Maybe you did because you're a lot smarter than I am. Uh-huh. I was watching the video on YouTube, and a, there was a comment on there that said, "Have you ever noticed that no, none of the verses rhyme?" And it never did. Oh wow! The lyrics don't rhyme. I, and oh, my I thought, gosh. Yeah. Because normally, you know, you would, of course, a really beautiful, catchy song, you would assume everything's rhyming, and it's not. I just think that's a really bit of tr- interesting bit of trivia about that song that I'd never caught on to before. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that either. Yeah. Well, good. Okay. Boy, I'm teaching Tom a little something here. This is, see, this is a big always, moment for me. See, well, you see, there's always things that you can discover. It's Very when true. You, when you start to shut yourself down and think that you know everything, that's when you're in trouble. That's very true. Uh, okay, your favorite song of all time. Number one, um, favorite song. It's either Promised Land, which I mentioned already, or uh, Brenton Woods' Give Me a Little Sign. Wait, who? What was that one? Brent, Brenton Woods' uh, Give Me a Little Sign. Oh, is that uh, Give Me... I, I can't if sing. If you don't want me... Do, 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 yeah. From the, uh, yeah, mid-60s. Yes, kind of an old soul song. Yeah. Yes. Uh, okay. It's just a perfect 45, and that whenever I hear oh. it, like I, I heard it in the store in the last couple of weeks, and it just transports me somewhere else. That is great. Awesome. Uh, my favorite song of all time is As by Stevie Wonder. That's a beautiful song, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I just, it kind of makes, I, I don't even know. I've looked at the lyrics, and the lyrics are kind of nonsensical, and so I try not to think about the lyrics as much, even though there's some, beautiful lines in there, like, I'll be loving you always. It doesn't matter if the rest of the song doesn't make sense. That's a beautiful thought, you know? So that's, uh, yeah, that's my favorite song of all time. Um, The thing is, um, lyrics aren't necessarily to be all end all. I mean, like, I I think of R.E.M. at that point, like, uh, certain phases phrases, uh, make sense to me, but I don't necessarily need to hear everything. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm actually not much of a lyrics guy. I'm much more into mood. Um, in fact, one of my favorite bands, probably my favorite band of the 90s is Oasis. And my favorite Oasis song is Columbia off that first album, yep. which is just like a five-minute drone. I mean, there's some words in there. They don't really make a lot of sense, but it's not about that. It's about the the vibe, you know, this churning, exactly. beautiful, dark, uh, droney sound. That's Anyway. So yeah, I'm completely with you on that. Well, yeah, I'm I mean, that's that's why we're both Noel Gallagher fans. Yes, words yes. words are incidental or like just broad strokes. Very true, very true. Uh, okay, concert. Have, do you have a favorite concert or a best? Um, my favorite concert was um, a show at the Largo, a Watkins Family Hour. Um, Whoa, uh, where. Not only was it uh, Sarah and Sean Watkins, who are terrific in their own right, but uh, Ben Montench was on uh, keyboard. Interesting. And then um, John C. Riley came out to sing Everly oh. Brothers songs and wow. duets with Sean. And then uh, John Paul Jones shows up. And, no uh, and plays bass for a little bit. And at the 
finale, uh, Fiona Apple comes out to sing three songs. No so, way. The, so that was it's uh, pre- it's pretty hard to top that one. That was sure. uh, just a, uh, like I really liked the communal vibe, and I liked that there were just as many covers as original. And I just it was it was a wonderful wonderful yeah. night. And you saw that in L.A. I think. Yeah. 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 You got to be in those specific those big cities to have the guests just stroll through like that because they don't happen very often i i saw the only times this has happened to me was i saw neil finn at the fillmore in san francisco and johnny marr came out and oh. it seemed so amazing but then you realize that he was doing that on a lot of shows at with him around that time um neil had put out a live album seven worlds collide and yeah johnny that's, on a, that's that. pretty fun yeah yeah and so that was a big moment. They did How Soon Is Now. And then the only other time was I saw Live, like uh, the band Live, Live. Uh-huh. And Dennis Rodman came out on stage <laughs> and kind of goofed around and then left. So those are my those are my two. Oh, you know so what? You... No, I saw Stevie Wonder, and he brought out Herbie Hancock and Pat Metheny. Oh, that would, that would be pretty great. And I yeah. would really like to – I would like to see Stevie Wonder. And I'm surprised that you have never seen – a show where Eddie Vedder shows up to sing with Neil Finn. <laughs> no, no, uh, I, uh, I haven't. I, Eddie, Eddie Vedder kind of pisses me off. Uh, <laughs> I want to, I like the first two albums a lot. I feel like he is such a humorless killjoy. And I'm sure that he's not because he, maybe his sense of humor is just super dry, you know, like walk hard and, you know, he can obviously make a joke yeah. on talk shows and stuff like that. But he just seems like such a self-serious uh, killjoy. I, well, I just I can't get past it. I find his uh, fandom pretty endearing. I love, uh, especially how much he adores Split Ends, and that he's yes. not only played with Neil, but he's played with Tim Finn, mm-hmm. and so so I, I have a hard time, yeah, thinking bad thoughts about him because of that. Yeah, for that I am I'm grateful. Um, I got to say the best concert I've ever seen was a Springsteen concert, which is probably, you know, I think a lot of people say that. Are you cool uh, with Springsteen or did he bother you? Oh, I, it was, I, uh, I love you Springsteen. Like okay, I, I'm a I'm big fan and I saw, I saw the River Tour last year and that was one of the great shows that I've seen. So, yeah. totally. I've only seen him twice and it was, uh, again, growing up in Salt Lake, not a lot of bands go through there, you know, so True. you're kind of um, but back in college, this would have been about 2000, 2001, um, he came through for – he was promoting the live – a live album, the one with 41 shots on it or whatever that was. Oh, yeah, song yeah. Called. Yeah. He was promoting that, and it was – that was my first experience with him, really, and it was every bit as, you know, a religious experience, as people say. And then I saw him a couple years later for The Rising, and I actually kind of don't like The Rising album very much. Um, and he played most of it that night. I love him, but it was not my favorite night. Yeah, I, I have um, there's good songs on the rising. I have sort of problems with the album overall. So mm-hmm. yeah. I like it better than um, like waiting on dream or waiting oh, on yeah. dream, whatever that one. Yeah, yeah. His last great one to me is magic. I like magic. Magic's but, a good record. Yeah, in general, um, I feel like he needs to take some chances. Kind of his shtick is wearing a little thin for mm-hmm. me, but. Uh, okay, and then um, do you have a favorite artist? Just a general somebody that every speck of music they put out there, you need to have. You oh, probably have a number of them. 
a number of them. You know, I, I'm uh, like uh, I've mentioned a couple of them already, but some, mm-hmm. some of the ones that I haven't mentioned, uh, you know, I'm definitely like not only a huge fan of the Beatles, but McCartney in specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoy enjoy like even his bad albums are interesting mm-hmm. to me and sure. uh, along with classic rockers i, I like uh love the rolling stones i also uh love merle haggard and mm-hmm. uh and, and, uh jerry lee lewis and i have pretty much everything they've done along with uh everly brothers so. good cool okay good one um yeah i'm a bowie my holy okay. trinity is bowie Hollow Notes and Neil Finn's Last Credit House. That's a that's a good holy trinity. I'm a huge huge fans of all of those, especially you know Bowie and Hollow Notes. Yeah, and I also love the Kinks. The Kinks, good one. Yeah. Yes, the Kinks. Um, up there, also a band that I want to. Uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire is a big mm-hmm. one for me. Um, Simple Minds, which I love. Simple Minds. I know. I need they, to go back. Like I was really like a. a, a I really like them around 85, but I haven't uh-huh. spent as much time with, like, the the early stuff, which I know people absolutely love. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I once or twice a year, I go back, I find their whole catalog, start to finish, so fascinating, uh, because it just, it covers this wide spectrum of sounds, and not all of it is successful, um, and, you know, you could argue that they sold out at some point and never really went back, but they're, everything they do to me is at least tuneful and good and uplifting, and I, and I'm, I like it. I'm curious about everything they do. You know what I mean? So I'm a big uh, – uh, the Smithereens, Tears for Fears. That's a so good band, also, yeah. Yeah. They don't put out enough stuff, but um, they would be up there as also big ones for me. Uh, let's see. And then um, – is there a particular genre? It sounds like you like country and oh, classic love, rock or the conversion of the two. And I love early rock and roll. I love uh, a lot of the indie rock. I lo- love well, – one, like, subgenre that I really like is classic rockers doing new wave and disco. Really? Because I, 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 it, it's not necessarily good music, but that goes back to, like, liking different trends in the culture and seeing, uh-huh. like, how – how people age or either usually not with a lot of grace. And I think that's something that's, I like to, I like hearing like the parts we tend to like a certain narrative, especially with classic crackers. So we always think that, you know, the stones or mm-hmm. Bowie were infallible, but it's kind of interesting to hear. Uh, mm-hmm. I, well, I like the stone disco years, but like mm-hmm. Bowie does have tonight, which I love Blue Jean, but the rest of the record's not that, that great. But it's, um, yeah. but you know, like listening to the things that aren't as good from classic artists, I think are that's pretty interesting to me. Yeah, interesting. So who's like? Are we talking Rod Stewart? Do you think I'm sexy? What? Give me another example or emotional um, review of like a, a rock artist that dabbled in disco that you find especially good or fascinating um you know like uh i when uh alice cooper did uh, clones mm-hmm. that's that's kind of interesting uh nice. and um 
Sean Cassidy worked with Todd Rundgren for a record, which is really yeah. bizarre. And um, <laughs> true. and uh, of course McCartney too, when he's yeah. just dicking around with synthesizers for a while. That's a that's yeah. a, it's interesting stuff. Yeah, oh, fascinating. Um, okay, cool. I uh, I find for myself the two genres that I. I can't, uh, I'm kind of warmed up to it, no matter who it is or what's happening, are either 70s slash early 80s R&B, like I said, Earth, Wind, and Fire, that kind of thing, or um, 80s alternative, especially yeah. British alternative, you know? Mm-hmm. All the Echo and the Bunny Men and Howard Jones and Thompson Twins and Smiths you could ever want, you know what I mean? That's yeah. kind of my sweet spot. Well, I I love a lot of like seventy soul too. I really like Philly Soul, and I mm. like um what uh, Holland Dozier Holland did right after Motown with the yes. mix of hot hot wax. I think that's some of, some of the greatest music ever made. And mm. I also like a lot of eighties underground, but I also like the psychedelic revival and Paisley mm. Underground from from the eighties. Good. Okay. Do you have a favorite movie soundtrack? Oh. um... Let's see. I, that might be a trickier one. Well, I I definitely like um I think Jackie Brown I like a lot. Yeah, good one. Because so, I think Jackie Brown is really smartly selected and mm-hmm. it, it and it kind of mirrors the emotions of what what's in the music too mm-hmm. in the movie. Okay. And uh, this is Final Tap also has great songs. Yeah. Okay. I was going to ask you if there was one that was. Um, for the movie, not found songs that were played, you know, existing songs played in the movie, but songs done well, for I'm, the movie. But I'm that's... Josie and the Pussycats, the 2000s. Really? That's a, if you are into power pop, yeah. that, is, that is an amazing record. Like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Adam from Fountains of Wayne did some yeah. some writing in that. It's a, it's a really great record. Nice. Okay. I think my favorite soundtrack of all time is from the John Hughes movie, Some Kind of Wonderful. Um, Yeah, there's some really great, um, you know, indie for its day songs on there. Also, of course, the single soundtrack, the Lost Boys soundtrack Mm -hmm. was a big one for me when I was growing up, probably you too, that same 1987 um, formative year. And then I also um, a lot of black exploitation. I mean, I have a playlist oh, yeah. with hundreds of songs from black exploitation so, uh, movies on my iTunes, and one in particular is from The Mac by um, Oh, I'm blanking his name. We did The Mac soundtrack. Oh, uh, um, I'm blanking too. Yes. Oh, it's killing me. Near the end of the of the it alphabet. Is uh, Willie Hutch. Willie Hutch. That's it. Willie Hutch. Yes. Yes, I lo- that's a great, great soundtrack. Um, okay, and then uh, are you a vinyl guy or a CD guy, which you can? I'm more of a CD in terms of physical media for, mm-hmm. uh, like, the durability and sound quality. I think that um, I think vinyl has a lot of charms, but it's also very temperamental, and you have to uh-huh. have the cartridge and the needle. Uh, but I'm also pretty, pretty good with... Um, with uh, digital music in general. Okay. Do you have like an entire room in your house or is your whole house overtaken with CDs uh, and music uh, stuff? Pretty much confined to the office mm. and a spillover in the office. Uh, okay. But 
but yeah, like down, downstairs, I, I try to keep that just, you know, books and a little bit cleaner. Okay. It's, it's better that way. Do you have a favorite uh, music book? Um, Maybe an autobiography or something? Um, the one that pops to mind, uh, you know, there's a lot of them, but um, the the Bob Mayer uh, replacement file, Trouble Boys, is really? recent. And that's one of the best rock and roll bios that I've ever read. Oh, okay. It's, uh, it's, what's great about it is that it's exceptionally reported. Like a lot of first-person interviews, and he really dug deep into, uh, you know, interviews from the time and really ties it together and gives a real emotional thrust while being very detailed and historic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's there's a lot of great writing that's there happening now. I think there's a lot of the books that have been published recently that are are excellent. Good. Um, okay. So. I, um, I think three of my favorites are, number one, the uh, two-part Elvis, Peter Guralnik. Um, I love those. Guralnik's Gr- great. Like the Sam yeah. Cook, yeah. Cook bio is really good, and the Sam Phillips one is too. Yeah, I you know I'm not even I was I'm not even really a big Elvis guy, but I uh, I just found like you were saying the reporting. I mean, it's almost a day to day recapping of his mm-hmm. life and the ups and downs. And I just remember being at the near the end on the day when you know he's going to die, and when it occurs when it hits you that this is the day, and I've just invested hours getting to know this guy. Yeah, and this is it. And you almost get kind of I was not I mean emotional, you know like. My friend is going. This is the end of this journey yep. that we've been on. You know, I, it, it it really benefits from being that deeply reported and yeah. uh, by and having it being two separate volumes and it's divided at the right point. And you know, Elvis is a strange one. Like I wasn't a, I appreciated Elvis mm-hmm. growing up. Like I'm just talking on a personal level. But for me, as I grow older, I wind up loving Elvis more with each year. And like I find a lot that really moves me in his music and not just not just the sun years, but like throughout mm-hmm. his his career, the sixties and seventies both have a lot a uh, lot of great music. Um Mark Lewison's Beatles bio, uh yeah. the, which that's a really excellent bio too. I need to I need to check that one out. Yeah. Um as far as autobiographies go, Miles Davis's autobiography is uh-huh. mind blowing. I'm sure you've read it. Yeah. Uh just and you know he wrote it. You can tell that it's his completely. Voice, and it is so it's you just can't believe some of the things you're hearing and reading in there, but I loved that one. And then another one which is under the radar is uh Mid Year. His I've never read that. Yeah, his autobiography called If I Was um, I liked it because I like him a lot, but it also, he didn't pull any punches. He answered every question that you would want to have answered, you know? And so often I feel like these guys give you, you know, the candy colored version of themselves that they want you to know, but he just would, laid it all out very honestly. And I really respected that from him. And so that was a good one that kind of flies under the radar. I think. Was that published over here? Uh, that's a good question. I think I got it for Christmas on off Amazon for like a book. Okay. Uh, and yeah, because so, sometimes like I know that I've always had a hard time tracking down uh, Ian Hunter's Diary mm-hmm. of Rock and Roll Star because it I it may have been in print over here at one point, but it's definitely not still in print. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure you could get a cheap 
used copy of Midyear's uh, autobiography. I, I liked it a lot. I just yeah, I respected his honesty in there. Um, okay, do you have a guilty pleasure? I don't really have. I, I don't have guilt about the things that I have. I get pleasure from, but I guess my stock answer for that would be I really, really love uh, Rick Springfield. Yes. Uh, who oh, I think is, is, yes. is who I have no guilt about, but most no. people would think think that he's, uh, you know, like just yes. some, some sort of cartoon. But he's he's a, an exceptional writer and performer, and he uh, I think that he doesn't get the credit he deserves. Oh, what a Wonderful answer. Oh, I love that answer. That's a good one. I am 100% with you. He's so much better. I guess because he's good looking, people just don't, they discredit the talent or whatever. But that guy can write, uh, especially back in the heyday, you know? Oh, he, yeah. Um, he was on it. Oh, very good answer. Yeah. I, working, my, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Working Class Dog is about as perfect as a power pop album gets. Yeah, I agree. Oh, good for you. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I don't you. know that I could top that. It would be like Def Leppard would be – we've talked about them. I've grown to really appreciate their songwriting and what, they, what they're doing from a, more of a pop perspective or a power pop perspective, glam perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're much better than people give them credit for. Oh, yeah, and I mentioned really... Howard Jones. He's big in Utah, so I feel like I grew up with Howard Jones in a way. I really loved him. Mm-hmm. I had a friend who actually had a mural of Howard Jones in his uh, his room, which was very strange. That would but, uh, I wouldn't go quite that far. Right. <laughs> I just uh, I have a lot of nostalgia for uh, for Howard Jones. Um, okay, two last questions. One, are, is there a review on the website that you are particularly proud of? Uh, I really couldn't name no. one off the top right. of my okay. head. There's, there, you know, there's stuff that I like. I mean, I know that I know one that I don't like. Mm. Yeah, that, that would be better. I really don't think that I did a good job on the Foo Fighters one by one or one on one, whatever the oh. record, record was, like around 2001, 2003. I, okay. I I don't even know if my opinion's right. I just don't like the way that I executed that. That's one that interesting. But, but I've never wanted. I can hear the record and see if yeah. I want to redo it. So, so when you say that, is that because you were having a hard time thinking of the right words? Were you not in the right headspace? I think were I was you... having a bad week or a bad month, and it just didn't come together. And it's one that oh, I just know off the top of my head that that was a time that I just didn't really get it together. And so, huh. so anyway, offered criticism on that particular review, I'd say yes, sir. You're right. Okay. Wow, interesting. I've never come around to the Foo Fighters. They, I, 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 uh, they don't seem that different than Nickelback to me. And I don't <laughs> say that. I don't say that as someone who even hates Nickelback. I don't care one way or the other. But I know that Nickelback is emblematic of a band that's easy to hate. You know, they're a punching yeah, bag, I, whether I, they I deserve it or not. Yeah, I think at this point, too many people are run down Nickelback. I mean, they're not great, but it's sort of cliche. Right. And Foo Fighters, I mean. The cliche is you start writing songs about the road when you stop having things to write about. And then True. Sonic Highways is basically Foo Fighters trying to find a reason to make a record uh-huh. or still be in yeah. the band. So. Yeah. I just, uh, I, I, it bothers me that he gives so much um, credit, you know, no Bob Mould, no Hoosker Do, no Foo Fighters. 
And I think, well, I don't hear any Husker do. I don't hear you. You know what I mean? At least he's, you know, like, I'm, I'm happy that he's giving Bob some, absolutely, some credit, but he, but I agree, like, I don't really hear any Huskers in the Foo Fighters. Yeah, I don't either. That reminds me of one other guilty pleasure I have to mention. When Dave Grohl was on WTF, he really was championing Andrew Gold, and I love Andrew Gold. I Andrew, think Andrew Gold, Gold is, is excellent. Really great. Yes, thank you. Yes. Uh, and those records are really interesting, too. I yes. Think. I just bought an Andrew Gold box set that had those first four the, uh, albums with yep. bonus tracks and everything. And that's really affordable, too. Yes, and it was so good. I was, it was one of those things that I was yeah. really glad I had bought. I oh, mean, like, so good. Uh, like with a lot of those uh, 70s soft track singer-songwriters, there's a lot of craft in the yes. writing and the recording that's really appealing. And I think, mm-hmm. think that's why it's, uh, you know, it's appreciated more now by music heads than it was at yeah. that time. Good. Yeah, I'm glad you're with me on that. I I'm, I love him. Okay, last question. All right. Who would you most want to interview? I guess Nickel- we could say Alive or Dead. But Nickelback, is that what you were Nick- saying? No, it's, it ha- I would love to have a good Nick Lowe interview. But oh, Nick I, Lowe, of course. But the, th- but the thing is, uh, like with, you know, some of the guys that have been around forever, they have their standard stories, like you read a McCartney interview, and you you know what stories you're going to get for, yeah. for a little while. But Nick Lowe, I've loved so many phases of his career. I would More than an interview, I would like to have a dinner with him yeah. where I just hear him tell every single mile melter he has. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I can get with you on that. I like him a lot, too. Well, um, thank you, Tom. This is... Uh, this is a dream. And I could go on like this Thanks, for hours, John. but I'll save you the, the time. But thank you well, so much for talking to me. It's been a lot of fun. I'm so glad. Tell, I mean, let's be, is there anything better in the world than just two guys talking about music? No, it's always great no. to just like talk, talk about music for a couple hours. Isn't it? Or all, or all night. Yes. Okay, well, thank you for giving me a couple hours of your time. Give us one song, one more Desert Island disc. Um, I'll give you uh, my favorite Robert Palmer since I was talking about about him earlier. Uh, Sulky Girl from Clues. I think that's a yes. that's a great song. Good. There you have it, Stephen Thomas Erlewine. Oh, Tom, right? Let's just call him Tom. All those names, all those words. Let's just say Tom. So much easier. By the way, I there was a question I really wanted to ask him that I forgot to ask him, so I emailed him about it later. I wanted to know what the last CD he actually bought was. And just to further this whole Nick Kit, Nick Lowe obsession, it was a Brinsley Schwartz uh, compilation. So let there be no doubt or question about the devotion this man has to the great Nick Lowe. It's a good one. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that one. I loved it. Now, next week little teaser next week's guest had a number one hit in the mid 80s uh that you still hear today and it's really pretty much his only hit not only that he almost completely disappeared after this hit happened um it's from a movie that's all i'm going to tell you i am really excited for you guys to hear this conversation too he's a nice man you know and love the song it's a good one uh, huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man, my right-hand man. Thanks, buddy, for all that you do. 
and the business. As you guys know, you can find us on Facebook. You can like the page. You can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, welcome. The thing that we try to talk about on here, which we didn't get to with Tom because it doesn't fit, is what is the emotional, psychological, and financial impact of brief rock stardom? How do you deal with that? What are the highs and the lows? That's what we normally talk about on here. And if there are guests that you, people that you haven't heard from for a while that you love, that you'd like to have on the show, let me know. I'll be honest with you. I have a rather large backlog of interviews already in the can at the moment. So anyone that I would talk to now would not actually be on the show for a couple of months. So I might take a little break, but if you've got someone good, let me know and uh, I'll add it to the list and I'll get to it when I can. Anyway, thanks everybody. We will see you guys next Tuesday.